Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 8, Into Exile. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can find Episode 1 of Season 1 easily at 15minutesontheway.com. Otherwise, if you're already on the way with us, welcome back. I've missed you, friend. Here is today's story. We won't take time to go through Daniel's book with a fine-toothed comb, but do want to unpack his opening interaction with the emperor. Like Joseph, Daniel shares our gift of the ability to interpret dreams, and does so for Nebuchadnezzar twice. The first saving the lives of all the Babylonian wise men who were about to be executed for their inability to crack the dream's code. Nebuchadnezzar has ruled out any cheating on their part by requiring that the wise men not only tell him what his dream means, but what his dream is. Anyone can assign random symbolism to a known dream. The king is requiring supernatural knowledge. We, of course, reveal the dream and its meaning to Daniel. And to his credit, before launching to the dream's description and meaning, Daniel credits us with his ability to help the king. Daniel 2.28 within the full dream sequence context of all of Daniel 2. Nebuchadnezzar dreams of a great statue with a head of gold, chest of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of iron and clay mixed together. It's a double-barreled message meant for both the king and the years to come. Nebuchadnezzar is the golden head, his kingdom the greatest, to be followed by lesser and lesser empires. Finally, in the time of the cobbled empire of iron and clay, a permanent kingdom will break in, symbolized by a great block of stone not cut by human hands that crashes into the statue, striking at its feet. The statue breaks into pieces that are blown away like chaff in the wind, while the stone becomes a huge mountain and fills the earth. Now, the reason we are taking the time with this is that, as you might have guessed, the stone uncut by human hands is cut by ours, and represents a key development in the Abra plan. We're only on the first of five empires that have to roll through before that development, but they'll zip by before you know it. For now, Nebuchadnezzar is honored by his placement and worth in the statue. He is also reminded that his empire is a transitory one, is shown that I am not the temporary one in the picture, and that I am certainly with Daniel. Daniel will provide Nebuchadnezzar with further proofs of these things in a fiery furnace, Daniel 3, in the interpretation of a further dream, Daniel 4, warning the emperor to remain humble or be destroyed, and in the lion's den, Daniel 6. Everybody always remembers the lion's den, and for good reason. In contrast to David's hybrid career as a Hebrew ministering largely to Gentiles, 
Ezekiel is an old-fashioned prophet cut from the same cloth as Isaiah and Jeremiah, plus Ezekiel's a priest to boot. Ezekiel means God is strong. Yep. Like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel's scroll opens with our call to him, and he's got a vision to rival Isaiah's, plus a direct call from us to match Jeremiah's. Ezekiel 1 features a vision of our all-knowing, ever-present glory, complete with mighty attendant angels shaking the place with their voices while a figure of resplendent grandeur appears above a lofty throne. Ezekiel 1, 10-20 Ezekiel's next chapter holds our direct commission to Ezekiel. Note that in our call to him, the delineation between north-south, Israel, Judah, are gone. We're back to Israel, meaning all the children of Jacob slash Israel, not just the seceding tribes in the north any longer. I send Ezekiel to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. Ezekiel 2.3. Our mission with Ezekiel is one of due diligence with our people. By his presence, they will know we still want them back and are still pursuing them, even though they're already in exile. Yet they still manage to ignore Ezekiel and us. Ezekiel 2.1-7. While we certainly use parable and metaphor with nearly all our prophets, Ezekiel takes this to all new performance art form levels using all manner of props. Clay, swords, scales, mountain ranges, luggage, wildlife, vines, kitchen utensils, bones, you name it. We'll limit ourselves to discussing just two here, one now and one later in his ministry. Because of all of them, these carry the most universal messages. Since these images are to be woven throughout his career, it's fitting that a strong metaphor be part of Ezekiel's calling. I hand him a scroll covered on front and back with harsh words of warning, of lament and mourning and woe. I tell Ezekiel to eat it and fill his stomach with it. When he does, it tastes as sweet as honey. This is Ezekiel 2, 9 through 3, 3. It goes by in an instant, but like many things in the owner's manual, is meant to be lingered over. Our words... The writing on the scroll, of course, are meant to be taken in, to be ingested not as a light snack, but as a full and filling meal that becomes part of you, that works its way into your being, that fuels and empowers your next steps. They are not to be considered from a distance as museum artifacts, but as the stuff of life that will keep you alive. Our words may be harsh and strong at times, as those on Ezekiel's scroll, as warranted by the perils from which we desperately desire to save you. Yet even the harshest, bitterest calls to repentance are sweet to the taste because they lead to life with us on the way. Ezekiel is then firmly charted to the house of Israel and not to their captors, in nearly direct contrast to Daniel told repeatedly to stick to his message, no matter how little it is listened to. 
and finally appointed as sentinel or watchman upon the figurative walls of Israel, who will convey everything he sees and hears from us to those within their exile in Babylon. The physical walls of Jerusalem are still standing at this point, but not for long. The wall metaphor serves as a sense of boundary and identity, identity that still surrounds our people even though they are in exile and very much not within a walled city of their homeland. However, the boundary that marks them as my people is as strong as ever. What follows in Ezekiel's next chapter, 4, is another rather graphic parabolic sequence focused on the actual walls of Jerusalem and the devastating siege that will soon befall it. Speaking of Jerusalem, Zedekiah's losing it over there. His name may be connected to my righteousness, but his behavior is not. Though he doesn't burn any prophet's scrolls, Zedekiah has the same heart as his brother Jehoiakim, as attested by both kings and Jeremiah. This final period is tracked by narrative in three parallel accounts again, as when Isaiah previously added his voice to the king's chronicles account. This time, of course, it is Jeremiah who joins in and tracks largely with kings. At least Jehoiakim's 18-year-old son had the sense to not resist Nebuchadnezzar's forces. Not so Uncle Zed. Zedekiah rebels against both kings that reign over him and have placed him in his current position. Nebuchadnezzar and me. He bucks against Babylon and at the same time stiffens his neck and hardens his heart against me turning a deaf ear to Jeremiah's continued refrains. Jeremiah 27, for example. Those people who do remain in Jerusalem are without any moral compass, slipping back into Manasseh-like pollution, spilling over even into our house. Second Chronicles 36, 11-16. Then, though he is but three years older than the nephew he replaced, Zedekiah shows himself three times the fool Jehoiakim had been. At least the teenage king had had the sense to surrender when Nebuchadnezzar showed up, going into exile the easier way. This time, though, when the Babylonian emperor has had enough of his insurgent vassal's rebellion and comes to lay siege to Jerusalem, just as Ezekiel has colorfully predicted over in exile, Zedekiah chooses the very hard way, hard in heart and in consequence. In obstinate pride, he decides to wait out Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler with more resources at this point than anyone else on earth. Well, while Nebuchadnezzar waits for the motivation of extreme hunger to kick in within Jerusalem, and you know it will, Jeremiah continues to urge surrender, telling all who will hear that whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine, or plague, but whoever goes over to the Babylonians will live. They will escape with their lives. They will live. Jeremiah 38.2 This kind of talk is seen as demoralizing and is what gets Jeremiah thrown into that poetic empty cistern that's been waiting for him. The people have turned away from the source, and as a result, their time is running out.
The siege goes on for weeks, then months, then years, or at least a year and a half. The accounts in the owner's manual, we are back to tracking with Second Kings 25, and now Jeremiah has double accounts in Jeremiah 29 and Jeremiah 52. The accounts in the owner's manual chronicle the outset of the siege on the tenth day of the tenth month of the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, then casually include the ending date of the ninth day of the fourth month of his eleventh year. Feel free to map that out on a calendar, but it adds up to one day shy of eighteen months. Though water is still available thanks to Hezekiah's earlier genius, the food is all gone and desperate famine has taken hold of those locked inside the city. Nebuchadnezzar could have waited longer and simply let them starve to death, but instead he gives the word to his forces, and a breach is made in the wall of Jerusalem to bring an end to the siege, to the city, and to Zedekiah, who somehow thinks he can wriggle out of the catastrophic mess he's gotten himself and his people into. Zedekiah takes a band of soldiers with him and slips out of the city in the middle of the night through what he thinks is his secret garden gate in the wall, heading east. He's loose for just a few hours before getting captured. Now, Judah's great and actual warriors were exiled with Jehoiakim. They might have put up a fight to save their king. Instead, Zedekiah's leftover lieutenants scatter to the four winds when the Babylonian forces begin to overtake them. Inevitably, Zedekiah is captured and brought before Nebuchadnezzar. To say that the running, now-captured vassal is in a heap of trouble with his superior is an understatement. So much needs to be said about the outcome that we will wait and process it all next time. Until then, keep walking with us on the way. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support us, spread the word. Give us a review on iTunes or Facebook. Then share a link to episode one with your friends. We hope our time together today has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way and be good to yourself.